All right, how we doing at the 9.30? We good? Good to see you. My name is Bryant, lead pastor here. If you're brand new with us, um, or maybe it's been a while and you're back, whether you're investigating faith, longtime follower of Jesus, I just want to reiterate in two weeks, next steps, um, we would love for you uh, to join us in that inaugural next steps throughout June, and that's going to be during the 11 a.m. every week. So child care is provided, make it super easy for you, and um, seriously enjoy your Sabbath week. And then I'm really excited to start this new series, Summer Party Series. I'll be preaching at all three of those services. And so I know it's June, but it really will be a great time and a great series to invite somebody to attend with you. So just have that on your radar. Um, Be looking out on social media at CenterPointFL as we start that series. But before we get there, we are going to wind down um, the final installment of Does God Make Sense? So you guys ready to go? I need to feel convinced. All right. All right. So here's, if you haven't been tracking with us or you're watching or podcasting, um, basically this whole series, my goal has not been to convince atheists. If you've been tracking and you thought that was my goal, it's not my goal. My goal throughout this series has really been to invite people back, specifically who kind of grew up in a religious environment, a Christian environment, and then somewhere along the way they just walked away. And there's so many who are in that category of having walked away from faith, they haven't fully embraced atheists. They're just kind of in the middle somewhere. There's such a large group that several years ago researchers came up with a term to describe them. And it's not a derogatory term, but just a term to identify what they would call as nuns, N-O-N-E-S, that they're just kind of non-affiliated. They're not hostile toward religion and Christianity, just don't know if they buy it anymore. They haven't moved full on over to atheism. They're just kind of stuck in the middle. And maybe that's you. Maybe that kind of describes you. And my whole goal in this series is to invite back those who have walked away, because here's what we've said. Some of you walked away from a version of Christianity, and some of you walked away from a version of Jesus that never existed to begin with. And so my goal, whole goal has been to get you to reinvestigate and take another look at maybe what you grew up with and maybe recapture and re-embrace the faith of your childhood, but not your childhood faith. That you would, for some of you, begin kind of an adult journey of Jesus where you can come with your questions. Like, you can come with your science. I mean, we have God's word, but we also have God's world, and those two things are not in conflict with each other. You can even bring some of your skepticism, and you can begin to investigate. You can begin to follow. You can begin to look at, again, the claims of Jesus and what it means to follow Jesus. So that's been my whole goal throughout this series is just to invite people back who've walked away. And here's the thing, and I I really mean this. If you are in a place where there's skepticism and there's questions, you, you need to engage the church because if more of you engage the church, you would like the church right? And in fact, that's one of the beautiful things, if I can brag on our church, beautiful things about our church is so many in that category have been drawn to our churches here in Varico and in Wesley Chapel that have questions, have skepticism, walked away a long time ago, because one of the barriers for you is you just think everybody's got it together, nobody has any questions, nobody's grappled with the doubts that you've grappled with, and it's simply not true. And if you engage or if you re-engage, I'm telling you, it would be good for the church. Like, we need your honesty. We need your questions. We even need some of your skepticism. It is healthy for the church. Every weird, insulary, subculture environment that the church has become is because we don't have enough diversity. And so I'm just telling you from the bottom of my heart, we need you to engage. We need you to investigate. 
And, and one other thing, and this is some, some of this is just kind of um, a bunch of stuff I couldn't fit in anywhere else the first part of this, so I'll get to where I'm going in a second. But if you're, if you're a guy, a man who has some kids, and you don't, some of you don't know me, so you don't have to take this from me, and so for whatever it's worth, but if you walked away because of your skepticism and you took your kids with you, if you're in the room or you're, you're listening online, can I just encourage you to reconsider that? If you walked away because of your adult skepticism and you took your kids with you, could you just reconsider that? Because for some of you, even though you've walked away, there were some things early on that were foundational for you when you grew up in the church that have served you well in life, even if you don't embrace Christ. And you are robbing your kids of a foundation that has the possibility to serve them for life. Don't walk away because of your adult skepticism and bring your family with you. And you're like, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Listen, hypocrites fill the churches every weekend. It's fine. Just join us. But don't keep them away. And here's the thing, man. I'm serious about this. That I just want to encourage you, just take a step. So as we start next steps in a few weeks, if there's something in you that's like, oh man, I, I, I do have some questions. I'm beginning to honestly consider some of those questions. Man, take a courageous step and do something. Get into next steps. It will be good for you. Join a community group. Get somewhere where you can really begin to track with this, really begin to journey with this. Because here's the thing that we say all the time here, and it was said just a few minutes ago. You can belong before you believe. Like, I mean that literally. You can belong. You can serve here and not believe it's in certain environments. You can join a community group. You can be a part of this body because that's what Jesus did as he journeyed the earth. Jesus constantly invited people to follow him before, he, before they believed. Hey, Matthew, come and follow me. Matthew didn't stop all of the things that characterized his life. He just began to follow Jesus. Did not believe, and then later on they believed, and then later on they lost belief again, walked away from Jesus and then they believed again and ultimately changed the world. So if you are somewhere in there, you're in great company because that really is the rhythm of following Jesus. If you walked away, you can walk back and you can begin to investigate, you can begin to follow at some level even if you don't believe and you can belong here before you believe. Because we said often the church should be, is this not true? The safest place in the world for anybody struggling with anything. It should be a place where people in process can investigate. Acts 15, 19. Please don't make it difficult for people who are in process turning to God. It should be a place that is accessible and welcoming to everybody. And so come on, we want you to engage. We want you to begin to step in and you really can belong before you ever and if you never believe. And what I don't want you to do is to move to a place where you discard everything that you know is undeniable because of a few things that currently are unexplainable. So would you just be willing to just take a step? Would you be willing to engage at some level and just see what happens? So with all that said, there's one more thing that I want to deal with as we land the plane on this series. And here's what I want to ask you to do for a couple minutes. And this is difficult. And this isn't difficult if you walked away. This isn't difficult if you abandoned faith. I just want to be clear. That's the application. That's kind of who I'm talking to. But this is difficult for everybody, every single human being. But I want to ask you to do something that is extraordinarily difficult. I want to ask you to be really, really honest with yourself. I want you to really be honest at a deep level with you. And that is hard for every single one of us. 
Like when I'm honest with myself generally, I have to walk away and there's something that I have to do. Like when I get really honest and I kind of crowd out all the white noise, generally there's something that I have to admit. Generally, there's somebody I've got to forgive. Generally, there's some action step I need to take, and it usually happens in the general vicinity of the people that I'm closest to. But when I get really honest with myself, that's why it makes me nervous, generally, I have to do something. But here's what all of us know is that self-deception always leads us in a bad direction. Isn't that true? Self-deception is always the lid on our future. Self-deception is the thing that keeps us stuck. Self-deception always keeps us from really moving forward in every area of our life, man. Not just relationship with God. Your finances, your relationships, just general, your business decisions. If you give in to self-deception, it wrecks every part of your life. And Jeremiah, thousands of years ago, is brilliant. He's like, listen, this is just the human heart. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Well, my mom said I was good. Your mom lied. Your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked when it's left on its own. And, and then Jeremiah says, who can understand it? Meaning, left to ourselves, we don't even know our own hearts, our own decisions. We do things, we get on the other side of them, we're like, why did we do that? And we stay in this place of never evaluating those decisions, never evaluating what we really feel, and it wreaks havoc on our life. Self-deception always leads you in a bad direction. I mean, think about your home growing up. For some of you, if your parents had been honest in their relationship. Imagine if there had been honesty, maybe in your first marriage, what would have happened if somebody could have just, just laid it on the table and got shockingly honest. It would have changed everything. Self-deception never leads you in the direction, ultimately, that you want to go. And so this morning, I want to ask you, and this is tough for all of us, I want to ask you to be honest with you. Now, the question is, what does that have to do with faith? What does that have to do with walking away from faith? There's a guy by the name of Thomas Nagel who's a brilliant atheist, and he is a professor at New York University. He's a philosopher. Um, He's a professor of law, and he wrote this book called Mind and Cosmos, and the subtitle is basically like a thesis statement. Why the materialist neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. And I'm sure all of you got that. You're like, oh, yeah, okay. Um, But this book right here created massive, huge waves in the atheist community. And again, Thomas Nagel is an atheist, but he called into some questions some things that made the scientific community really, really nervous. Because basically what Thomas Nagel said in this book is that scientists, in some cases, and atheists are um, guilty of the very things that they accuse religious people of doing. Like religious people, and we do this, so this is our fault, but they accuse religious people of any time there's not an answer to the question, God becomes the fill in the gap answer. Week two of this series. So I'm not sure that's God. Well, I don't know the answer to that. Well, God did that. Well, I don't know how that works out. Well, God doesn't want us to know. It's a mystery. God, it's God. So God is the fill in the gap answer to every question, which ultimately, you listen to week two, undermines your faith. But Thomas Nagel in this book says scientists and atheists do the exact same thing because natural selection becomes the answer to everything. And so when you don't know an answer, natural selection becomes the answer. And yet, he says, that there is some undeniable phenomenon that cannot be answered by natural selection. And in fact, he deals with the issue we've talked about in this series, that natural selection can never produce value for any of us. And in fact, value becomes an illusion. And so this created massive waves, but in another book that Thomas Nagel wrote, and this is what I want to just read a quote from real quick, Thomas Nagel, who is this atheist, incredible thinker, says something that just, he's shockingly honest. 
And in his honesty, for some of you, it reveals something and is a reflection of something that you have felt, that you have thought, but you've never been able to acknowledge. What he says is is so truthful. He's so honest that hopefully for some of you, it may be the catalyst for you to get honest with yourself in a way that you've never been able to be honest before. And here's what Thomas Nagel says in one of his other books. The book is called The Last Word. He says, I... I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Nagel's like, listen, the thing that keeps me up at night is I so want atheism to be true, and yet there are highly intellectual religious believers that create really good arguments, and that bothers me. And he goes on to say this, it isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It is that I hope there is no God. It, it, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. And Thomas Nagel admits something that maybe at some level you've felt but never been able to admit. At some level you have had kind of in the back of your mind but you've never been able to get out in the open. And if you were ever to acknowledge that there is any of that below the surface, I get it. It's terrifying. If you ever acknowledge that there's some of that thinking in the back recesses of your mind, it opens up a door that you may never be able to close. It cracks open the door to something that you may never fully be able to shut. Because here's what you know, that there is a huge difference between I don't want to believe it or I don't believe it. There's a huge difference between I don't believe it because of some questions that have been you know, risen to the surface, because of an argument that was created, because of an experience that I dealt with somewhere along the way, and my experience in those questions just seemed irreconcilable with God. There's a big difference from that I don't believe it to I don't want to believe it. This is about will. This is about I don't care what you come with. I don't care the level of the information. I don't care about the argument. I've already made a decision that not I can't believe it and don't believe it. I don't, I don't want to believe it. So here's the question. Did you stop believing because of an argument that was raised maybe in a freshman English class? Did you stop believing because of something you read? Or did you stop believing or did you decide to stop believing because ultimately your belief became inconvenient for you and then you're like well stop believing it's not really an argument so then you had to go find an argument go find some reasoning for your stop believing because when people ask you the question you can't go well, I just decided to stop believing no it was around science it was around an argument it was around something I experienced but you had to go find reasons to support why you decided ultimately to stop believing Let me ask it this way. Did your decision to not believe precede the data that you've collected to support your unbelief? And see, this is huge, and this is where I want to lead you. Because if your decision to stop believing and to walk away from faith is around will, and if it's around want, then there is no amount of information that will ever suffice for you. 
It's why you get into conversations sometimes with people if you're a believer and you're answering the conversations and you're going back and forth and it's like you cannot get anywhere in the conversation. And there's times you're like, I just made a great argument. Drop the mic, walk away. And it, there's, there's nothing there because there are instances where no argument, no explanation, no answer to a question is ever gonna be enough because if it's about will and want, information is not the issue. Information is not what hangs in the balance. It is not your science. It's not your argument. It's not your experience. It's that you decided somewhere along the way that you did not want to believe, and then you went and collected data to support your unbelief. And you've never been able to acknowledge that. You've never been able to get to, to the place to go, okay, that's just true. I love what Blaise Pascal says, 17th century he was a prodigy, a physicist, philosopher, and he says this, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And come on, are we not all guilty of that? Are we not all guilty? I need you to, I need you to say something right now because every once in a while, like, did I lose you? Are you out there? Like, are we not all guilty of that at somewhere along the way? Because you don't get up primarily and start, it starts with me on this stage, with a truth quest. You don't get up every day to go, I just want to know what's true. I just want to know what is the basis of truth in every decision that I make. No, no, no. You have a track record of going after a relationship and a financial decision that everybody knew was a train wreck and somehow you thought you'd circumvent all of the circumstances, the outcomes, and you thought that ultimately it would bring you happiness and it didn't. All of us have a track record that we're not really on a truth quest, we're on a happiness quest, aren't we? In fact, sometimes we will adopt a worldview, we will adopt a set of beliefs, not on the basis of whether it's true, but on the basis of will it make me happy? Because we all want happiness. We all want to ultimately get to what we think is going to fulfill us and bring us maximum pleasure. And it's not really, come on, it's not really about truth. I mean, a great example is when you were growing up and you got in an argument with your parents, and in the middle of that argument, were you aggressively going after truth? Like, I just want to know what's true. Dad, I just want to know ultimately what's true, and I, that, that's what I want to Dad, that is a great point. That is enlightening to me. That really helps inform me. Thank you for, no, no. What were you after in your argument with your parents? Were you after truth, or were you after you getting your way? You were after you getting your way. And in fact, sometimes you would walk away and you won the argument and you knew, right? Because at the end of the day, you weren't after truth. You were after getting what you wanted. The same is true like in your significant other, relationship with your significant other, your spouse. You're in an argument and all, about halfway through the argument, you realize, oh crap, I'm wrong, <laughs> Right? Has that ever happened to you? And then what do you do? At that point, you're like, oh, babe, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Everything I just said was I, like, I'm trying to sell you on something that's not even true. I really, No, what do you do? You just keep on arguing, right? And in fact, if you're like me, the argument actually ramps up. I get more passionate about it because I know that I'm wrong, but I don't want her to know that I'm wrong. And so I bring out everything that I possibly can to convince her, to manipulate her, and to move her to the place where she sees things the way that I see them, even though I know in my heart I'm wrong, right? And sometimes you walk away from the argument and because your argument was better or you're able to convince a little bit better or because you had a one-liner that was just, I mean, it closed the conversation down or they got disconnected, you walk away and you won, but you know, right? 
See, thank you. When we, I'll just preach to you. We won't acknowledge what we suspect to, to be true. And when we won't look for fear of what we might see, when we won't acknowledge what we suspect to be true, and when we won't look for fear of what we might see, you know what that means? That there's something else at play. It means that your arguments are not really the reason. It means that all of those things that you've propped up as resistance to belief in God are not really the heart of what's going on. There is something else at play, and it maybe is not so much your arguments against belief, it is the implications of that belief. And is it possible, and come on, you may not even know me, so I just, with grace, I just want to go there for a second. Is it possible that what you say is the issue, what you say is the reason, the arguments that everybody else around you believes, the arguments that you have crafted over several years are not really even the reason. They're not why you you walked away. They're not why you have resisted belief. Could it be that there is something else? Could it be that there is another reason? And it is very difficult to acknowledge that reason. It is very difficult to confront that because ultimately it will crack open the door to something that you may not be able to shut. Could it be that if there is God, the issue is not your scientific arguments? Could it be that if there is God, there's a recognition that I am, next slide, guilty, that if there is God, there's this thing in me that I want to pass off of, you know, the cultural label. I just, I made some mistakes. I just, nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. And yet, kind of an old school term, you drag around this feeling about certain things that you've done and reactions in your life. You drag around shame. You are, you are ashamed And you've hid behind all the, I just, it's just an aberration. That's not like me. I don't normally do that. But but this has kind of gone with you. And and the thing that's hard to shake this is because your greatest regrets, those things that you feel the most guilt around, they never happened in isolation, did they? It always involved other people. Your greatest regret and your greatest guilt always involved other people because, come on, when you engage in something that you wish you could take back, it always hurts, it always affects others, and you can't give it back. You can't give a first marriage back. You can't give a childhood their childhood back. You can't give somebody their innocence back after you created regret for them. You cannot give back an idea that you stole. You cannot give somebody back a season. You can't give it back. You ultimately can, you can make restitution to a point, you can reconcile to a point, but you can't fully make up for what you stole. And every time there is something you've done to somebody else, it's a debt-debtor relationship. In a sense, you stole something, you owe it, but you can never really pay it back. And you carry that around. There is this thing, this shame, and your biggest mistakes are shrapnel. Those decisions are something that you have and that follow you around into every season, every relationship, and every circumstance of your life. And if you crack open the door to this, that's terrifying. Because those things just get bigger. And in the few years that I've talked with and met with a lot of people, this is one of the biggest obstacles. This is one of the biggest issues. 
of this, this feeling of I know that there is something that's not right. I know there's something that's broken. And if I ever really admit that and stop hiding behind my defense mechanism, if I ever admit that, it's just going to bring it all up to the surface and I have to confront it. And they were terrified. And it was only when they could get shockingly honest to go, no, no, I'm more than a mistaker. I'm more than it's an aberration. I'm more than, well, I'm just nobody's perfect. No, I'm, I'm guilty. I'm ashamed. I've done some things that I wish I could get back. And maybe nobody else knows about them, but they follow me around. And the moment they were able to confront that, they found freedom on the other side. But for some of you, the if God means I'm guilty, and if God also means that ultimately I'm accountable. And come on, none of us want to be accountable. None of us want to be at a place where we're accountable to anyone or anything. We want to play God. I mean, you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And maybe you don't take the Garden of Eden seriously. That's all fiction. But I'm telling you, if that's fiction, it is the greatest fiction that has ever been written. Because the insight around human nature is unbelievable. But from the very beginning, there has been this rebellion where we want to play God. We want to be autonomous. We want to be in a place where we're masters of our domain. And we find what ultimately is pleasure for us, what is fulfillment for us. And we want to do it on our own. And that thread has made its way into humanity, every single individual. And it's played out in the illusion of autonomy. That I just want to be autonomous. I want to be little g God of my own life. I want to do what I want to do. And here's the reality, and you know this. Autonomous people always have a pile of regrets. Autonomy always leads to regrets. In fact, unaccountable people always make regretful decisions. Unaccountable people always make regretful decisions. If you put two autonomous people in a marriage you basically have unresolvable conflict because autonomy is an illusion. It's the American dream, but it's an illusion. It doesn't exist, and it never leads us into a good place. And the question you have to answer is, why do I resist that? Why do I resist at what I know in other levels of my life is good for me, that leads me in a good direction? Why do I stiff arm that? What is that? Instead, what I do is just live a loud plugged in all the noise around me life until life finally gets my attention. But I don't want to be accountable. I want to run after the illusion of autonomy. And if there is a God, it means I am accountable. And it means if there is a God, I'm, 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 I'm wrong. I'm wrong. And not, come on, what is pride? What is, what is that thing in us? Maybe natural selection has an answer to this, this question, but I, I don't know what it is. What is that thing in us where we will not admit what we know is true? We will not admit what we in our heart know is true, that we resist it at all costs. What is that thing inside of us? Why do we do that? Why do we stiff arm that? And if there is God, it means I'm wrong. And come on, if you walked away from God, if you walked away from faith, this is one of the biggest obstacles because for me to come back, for me to reinvestigate at some level means I have to admit that I was wrong. I love what Lecrae says, just to mix in a rapper in here because there's a lot of white people in this room. If, <laughs> if I'm wrong about God, then I wasted my life. It's all for naught. But if you're wrong about God, then you wasted your eternity. 
But it's so difficult for us to admit. And again, you already know this. Humility is always the way forward, right? In every area of your life. Humility makes you smarter. Humility makes you wiser. Humility makes you bigger. Because humility makes you open to new information. To see the quickest way forward. To admit that I was It's hard to say. I was wrong is the most direct route to finding out what is right. But isn't it amazing that we can literally resist something that has the potential to shape our eternity because pride gets in the way? And ultimately, pride is the thing all the way back to the Garden of Eden and Romans 1. Pride is ultimately the thing that keeps us from God. And if there is a God, it means I'm guilty, I'm accountable, and I'm wrong. And to confront that and open the door to that, it's terrifying. But here's what I want you to see as we get ready to wrap this up. That these, these are not arguments for or against anything. These are just responses. These are just reactions. These are just unmet expectations. And come on, isn't it true for some of you? If you're podcasting me, this is for you. Isn't it true that... Your arguments against God came after your decision to not want God? Isn't it true for some of you that all of your scientific arguments did not come first? They came second. Isn't it true that somewhere along the, the line, whether it was inconvenience or whether, whatever it was, there was a decision that you made to want to walk away and to want to not believe, and then you went to collect data to bolster your argument around your decision to not believe. Because at the end of the day, you didn't want God to be. And there's a big difference between I can't believe and I don't want to believe. And I'm telling you, this is where the gospel that we began to unpack last week is so powerful. And this is where we can trust what Jesus said about God. And as we've said throughout the service, we, the series, we trust what Jesus said about God because he died, he came back to life. And anytime somebody comes back to life, it validates everything that they said about God and about the scriptures. And so if we can trust what Jesus said about God, it means the gospel, the good news, this thing that Jesus came to unpack for all of us is extraordinary. And it means if you would ever move to the place where you would recognize your issue is not existence. Your issue is not the existence of God. Your issue is not existence. Your issue is resistance. It is the thing that has kept you away. And the moment you can acknowledge that, you step into this epic narrative. The moment you can get honest with yourself at that level and it takes courage, you step into this extraordinary narrative of God coming to a rebel race to redeem and restore that race that broke relationship with him. A God coming through the person of Jesus and dying on a cross for all of our sins and walking out of a grave alive and communicating to humanity that I am for you, I want to reconcile relationship, I want to offer forgiveness, and it is found through me. The moment you can acknowledge it's not about Existence, it's about resistance. You step into this stream that all of humanity has been a part of. It's not science, it's not existence, it's not all of those things that I've placed up here. The moment you can recognize that, you step into the stream of a people that have struggled with submission to God all the way from the beginning. 
But the moment you can recognize that something happened, and if what Jesus said about God is true, it means that if there is a God, there's forgiveness. It means that your sin becomes the platform for God to demonstrate his love for you. I love what Paul said, and if you grew up in this, many of you know this verse, Paul, who's a guy who has a past that exceeds your past most likely, a guy who understands regret, a guy who had so much shrapnel that he was carrying around from past seasons, so this is so personal to him. And Paul says, God demonstrates his own love for us. Next slide. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still, uh, I just make mistakes a lot. Ah, nobody's perfect. I mean, everybody gets it. All of us fall short. Ah, that's not like me. I'm not normally like that. That's an aberration. It's just circumstances. No, 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 no. I did it on purpose. I knew what I was doing, and I did it anyway. I knew the ramifications, and I walked out anyway. I knew what was going to happen. I knew how it was going to hurt them, and I made the decision anyway. There is shrapnel. There's decisions. There's regret. There's dysfunction where I knew And the platform of my greatest sin is the platform for God to demonstrate, not just say, but for God to demonstrate his love for me. And he did it by Christ dying, not just for me, but Christ dying for the sins of the world. God coming to demonstrate how much he loves this rebel race. An atheist will look at this and go, okay, why why does there have to be all the blood? Why does it have to be all the violence? If there's a God, why doesn't God just say, I forgive you? And I'll tell you the answer to that question. Because God desires relationship. And you cannot have a relationship with someone you do not sacrifice for. The level of your relationships are determined by the level of sacrifice, period, any relationship. You cannot have a relationship with somebody you do not sacrifice for. And this is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the epic narrative. This is what Jesus came to unveil to planet Earth, that while we were at our worst, Jesus knew every sin we would commit. Jesus knew the regret that you're going to get to in three weeks. On the cross, he knew all of it. And the gospel says that God came into a broken humanity and demonstrated demonstrated his love, recognizing that a broken relationship requires forgiveness. It requires restitution. It requires reconciliation. And on the cross, he made that possible in the context of sacrifice because you cannot have relationship and you cannot have love without sacrifice. If you say you love me and don't sacrifice for me, we don't have a relationship. And Christ came to sacrifice and demonstrate in the most unbelievable way to all of humanity. And Paul says it is, it is the ground on which we know that Christ loves us, that Christ has done something for us, and that there is forgiveness that is available to every single individual. And come on, why would you want to live your life without that? Especially in your honest moments. And come on, you just, oh, you don't have to make any decision and there's going to be no bid for your soul today. But come on, in your honest moments, you look up at the ceiling and you know You know it's true. You know you crowd out those feelings of something is not right and I fall short. Why would you want to spend your life resisting that? If God, it means there's forgiveness. If God, it means there's relationship. 
To resist accountability is to resist relationship. You know this if you have kids. When your kids resist accountability, the relationship is broken. Not your love, not, not your feelings about them, but it's just, there's tension in the relationship. To resist accountability ultimately is to resist relationship. To resist the accountability of God is to resist a God who says, I've demonstrated through what I did for you that I am for you and I want your greatest good. I want your greatest pleasure. I want your greatest fulfillment in my glory. And when you resist accountability, you resist relationship. And if there is God, not only is there forgiveness, not only is there accountability, there is truth. There is a basis for moral law. There is a basis for justice. There is a basis, as we've said throughout the series, there is a basis for ought inside of you. There is a basis for the ought that does not always govern your actions, but it always governs your reactions. There is a basis for that thing inside of you that go, no, 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 that's right, that's wrong. You should be held accountable. You should follow through on that. You shouldn't do that. There is a basis for all of that. And come on, what is that thing inside of us where that basis for ought and ought not? It always, it always governs our reactions, but it doesn't always govern our actions. We'll look at something and go, no, that's right, that's good, but you don't do it. You should be held accountable, but I don't want to be accountable. You should follow through, but I didn't follow through. What is that thing inside of us where we don't even measure up to our own legit standards. Something is broken. And if there is a God, ultimately there is truth. There is a basis for the laws of nature that you respond to every single day. It's why you know what's justice. It's why you know what's right. It's why you know what's wrong. And if there is God, it means there is an objective standard for all of us. So if you acknowledge God, there's forgiveness. If there's God, there's relationship. And if God, there's truth. So if the question for this series was, do we want God to make sense? At certain moments, the answer is no. Because if God makes sense, it means we're guilty. And if God makes sense, it means we're accountable. And if God makes sense, it means we're we're wrong. But if the question was, do we need God to make sense? The answer is yes. Because when you're honest, and I know some of you don't want to confront this, you know you need forgiveness. And you know you need relationship. And you know you need a basis for truth because otherwise you cannot reconcile what you feel on the inside of you. I don't know if you know Jesus. Jesus had several brothers and sisters. The most notable, the most famous was James. And all of Jesus' family thought that Jesus was crazy before Easter weekend. Thought he was whacked out. Thought he was just off the rails. Needed to be committed. I mean, just thought he was, he just was out, which is what you would think about your brother. If my brother tomorrow started saying that he was the Messiah, that he was the son of God, we would commit him somewhere, Right? That's what they felt. I mean, just real terms, street level. That's what they felt about Jesus. Which is crazy that they record that in the scriptures. Well, they, everybody thought he was crazy. Don't put that in there. No, we're putting that in there. That's what happens. Everybody thought he was crazy. And then a resurrection happened, and they all changed their minds. Which is what you do when a resurrection happens. 
It changes your thinking. I don't believe you. I, I think you're crazy. You died. We brought flowers to your tomb. Then you came back to life a few days later. We believe. And James, the brother of Jesus, this is crazy, and you should just consider this. We've talked about it a lot. James, the brother of Jesus, comes to the place to admit to his brother, I was wrong. And James, the brother of Jesus, submitted his life to his brother as Savior and Lord and received forgiveness. And before James ultimately was killed, he wrote this incredible letter. And what's interesting is in 62 AD, the high priest Ananus, and you don't care about this, but it's just interesting. The high priest Ananus illegally called a trial of the Sanhedrin and put James, the brother of Jesus, on trial for blasphemy. And Josephus, a first century historian in extra biblical literature, says that, that James was stoned to death for faith in his brother as Messiah and Lord. And right before James left, he wrote a letter. And they saw it as so valuable and so worthwhile and as so legit that they began to copy it and spread it around everywhere. Like, this is the words of Jesus' brother who became one of the forerunners and leaders of the church movement. And they didn't have a lot of creativity, so they just, what are we going to call it? Just call it James. So we have this letter from James that he wrote before he died. And I, I can't think of a better way to land the plane on this five-week journey that we've been on. Here's what James, the brother of Jesus, says, who submitted his life to his brother as Savior and Lord. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And I don't know what James is thinking, but I was just trying to get in their heads. James has to be remembering how difficult it was for him to admit he was wrong. I mean, come on. How hard was that conversation? And he knows that it's not easy to draw near to God when you've drawn away from God. But he says, if you would ever come to, your pl to, come to the place to come near to God, he will come near to you. And then James says, okay, the other thing you need to do is address what you have hid behind this whole time. Address the things that have held you back. And he says it in language we don't use. Wash your hands, you, I know this is offensive, you sinners. Figuratively, James is just saying, come on, come on, come on. Just admit it. Everybody's not just mistakers. Everybody's not just, well, nobody's perfect. We're, we're sinners. We know something is broken. We have made decisions and we have done things and we have thought things in the quietness of our heart that we've never told anybody and it follows us around. And you can try to create every explanation you want, but you know it's with you. You know you can't get away from it. You know there is this shame that follows you. You know you don't measure up. And James just says, come on, just admit it. Admit that that's where you are. And then he says, and purify your hearts. You double-minded. James language, just quit playing. Just acknowledge you know this is true and don't hide anymore. Stop hiding behind your straw man arguments about belief and why you can't believe and just recognize that your issue is not belief. Your issue is the implications of that belief. And if I admit to God, I have to submit to God. And none of us want to do that. All of us resist that. But James says, if you would just come to that place. And then he says in verse 10, and this is the wrap up, and this is so powerful. He says, if you want to come back, if you want to draw back, if you want to come near to God, no matter how long you've been away, humble yourselves 
before the Lord. That's how you draw near in any relationship. Humble yourself before the Lord. Because here's what I can promise you, and this may be kind of offensive. Ultimately, I could sum this whole thing up in 10 seconds, and you could just take this as the takeaway. The thing that is keeping you from God ultimately is your pride. And James says, humble yourself before the Lord and. He says, no matter how far you've run, no matter what you've done, no matter how many years it's been, here's how God will receive you back. And he will lift you up. Because God, through the person of Jesus, demonstrated that his love is relentless, it is unending, and it never runs out no matter how far you've run away. And so I just want to plead with you, and I'm going to plead to the literally thousands of podcasters listening to this series that you can come back. And when you come back, your Savior has arms wide open to receive you back. Because the cross of Christ demonstrates the fact that anybody who's going to die for you is for you. And if you've walked away, if you've resisted, if, if you just have stiff-armed for years, hey, listen, you're just in the stream of humanity. We've done this from the very beginning. <laughs> but God says anybody who will turn back, humble themselves and admit the fact that they need God will be received by God, will receive salvation, will receive forgiveness, will receive life. And so wherever you are today, it just starts with acknowledging the fact that for some of you, maybe not all of you, but for some of you, the reasons that you've given for resistance aren't really the reasons at all. It's about surrender. It's about if I admit, I have to submit. And today you can humble yourself and say, Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that you knew every sin when you did it. I believe you walked out of a grave alive. And in this moment, I'm humbling myself to recognize I need you and I can't save myself. I'm trusting the fact that you've done what I couldn't do for me. We just bow your heads, close your eyes all over the house. And I want to give just two very, very quick invitations. The first one is this. Maybe you're not ready to cross the line of faith, but I believe that you are here for a reason. And in some ways, and take this the right way, I think God is on your trail, man. I think it's the reason that you're here. It's the reason that you're listening. And you would just say, the starting place for me is just to acknowledge the fact that some of the reasons that I've given and I've hidden behind are not really the reasons at all. And it's not so much existence, it's my resistance. And maybe you're not ready to make a decision, but just starting there, I'm telling you, is a massive step forward. If you would just go with heads bowed and eyes closed, just with uplifted hand, because there's something about the power of acknowledgement. You would just say, I want to begin to at least be honest with myself about what the reasons are for the fact that I've walked away. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand to go, that's me, and I just want to be honest. Yeah. yeah. And second invitation is for some of you, today is the day where, man, you're ready to cross the line of faith. And we've said this for several weeks, but there's no prayer, there's no mantra that saves you. There's no words. It's just simply belief and trust in your own heart and mind to say, Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe that you died on the cross and rose again. And you can pray something like this after me. And it's not the prayer that saves you. It's your recognition of the fact that you need God. It's your humbling of yourself and it's your transfer of trust and just your own heart and mind to say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for me and I believe three days later you rose again. And right now I'm humbling myself to recognize I need you. 
I'm asking you to forgive me and save me. And the scripture says the moment you do that, you'll be saved, you'll be rescued. And nothing can undo that rescue and relationship because it's on the basis of what God's done for you through Jesus and not what you can do for God. And one more time, if that's you, whether you're somewhere around the country listening to this in this moment, you're in the room right now, you just pray this after me. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's your declaration of trust and faith. Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe that three days later you rose again. And I'm humbling myself to recognize that I need God. And I'm asking you to forgive me and to save me. And if you've made that transfer of trust with heads bowed and eyes closed, we just lift up your hand and to say, today is that day where I've personally placed my faith and my trust in Jesus to begin a relationship with him. If that's you, would you just lift up your hand to say, today, that's me and I've begun that journey. All right, yeah. Anybody else? Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your gospel. I thank you for this epic good news. I thank you for the reality that what has been spoken in these few moments do not land in these few moments, but continue to reverberate, continue to move, continue to have impact sometimes years after they're spoken. So I thank you, believing in faith that what you have said is true and that you will continue to move and work in hearts and lives long after what is spoken today is over. And we pray all of this in the saving, reconciling, redeeming name of Jesus. Amen.